Welcome to Digital Health Today, the podcast focused on the leaders, innovators and technologies transforming healthcare today and tomorrow. Find us online at digitalhealthtoday.com. Welcome back to Digital Health Today, the place to be to get the insights of leaders making the healthcare of tomorrow available today. I'm your host, Dan Kendall, and this is episode 83. One of the things that we'd like to do on this program is bring an international perspective to the challenges that we're facing in healthcare systems around the world. We've had leaders from California to Israel and Finland to Sub-Saharan Africa, but even still, there are huge parts of the world we have yet to cover. One of those major regions is Asia Pacific, and in this episode, we're going to dip our toes in the water. Pardon the expression. While everyone knows there are huge numbers of people in this region, there are also tremendous opportunities for investors and healthcare companies of all sizes. When I was at the Frontiers Health Conference in Berlin last November, I spent some time with a friend of mine who lives in Singapore, and I invited him on the show to give us a little insight into the similarities and differences in the market and how companies can be and are being successful. So this episode is like a little APAC 101 summary to outline some of the cities and countries and strategies that are working as leaders and organizations transform health for the billions of people that live in APAC. Tony Estrella is an investor, advisor, and global digital health expert. He has experience all over the world, having lived and worked in Asia, the U.S., and Europe as a startup founder, investor, and corporate innovation leader. Tony works with companies who are developing solutions for the Asian market that are changing the face of cancer, human longevity, and population health by deploying leading tech in AI, genomics, blockchain, and smart devices. Tony is a graduate from Wharton, and he got an engineering degree from the University of Pennsylvania. He now resides in Singapore with his wife and daughter, and I can't forget to talk about this. He's also a newly minted fiction writer. Tony's written a book called Comatose that is now available for purchase on Amazon and other book retailers. We talk about this project as well on this episode. The show notes are, of course, available on our website at digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 83. We also have a link there to a PDF that Tony created that summarizes some of the detail from this conversation. Of course, we also have a link to his new book, and we also have a video of an interview that Tony did with Jessica DeMassa at the 2018 Frontiers Health Conference, so be sure to check that out as well. Now let's dive into APAC with Tony Estrella. Tony, thanks for joining me and welcome to the program. Thanks. My pleasure to be here. Tony, you're speaking to me from Singapore. How long have you lived there and what attracted you to working in that part of the world? Moved here at the end of 2014 and I'd actually been thinking about spending more time out in Asia for a couple of years before that, primarily because I've lived here when I was growing up. I lived in Japan. My wife is from this part of the world in Malaysia, but from a professional and health perspective, it's just an incredible region in terms of the dynamics of change and what's happening across the region in terms of health and having the ability to leapfrog legacy systems and traditional ways of how healthcare is done in the U.S., in Europe, and in the West because of the mobile-first and mobile-centric environments for consumers and the fact that there's 4.4 billion people here all undergoing some change in how healthcare is becoming more relevant and more accessible to them. You've mentioned there a little bit about the demographics and the size of the market. Let's dive into that. Give me an understanding about the APAC market. Can you share some of the key cities and countries that really are shaping some of the innovation and investment that's happening? Yeah. Asia is uh, an enormous region to think about. So whenever I describe it to others, I usually break it up into six main hubs. 
Clearly, the one that's top of mind for most people when they think of Asia is China. And Hong Kong is traditionally a hub for how you think about how to look at China in that a lot of the historical Western interactions with China have come through Hong Kong. And so there's still a legacy of thinking about Hong Kong, go in there as a Western company, and then think about going into China. Clearly, there's obviously Beijing, Shanghai, and, and large regions of China, which the companies can operate in. The next region is the Indian subcontinent, which stands alone in terms of India and the surrounding countries. Japan and Korea are the next two. And then as you move further south, Singapore is the gateway to Southeast Asia. Uh, and that includes countries like Indonesia, the Philippines, Malaysia, Vietnam, and others. Uh, and lastly, you have Australia and New Zealand. And I break it up into those regions because there's different dynamics in terms of developed versus developing Asia, and also the way that the dynamics work for the healthcare systems. So six main hubs, you mentioned 4.4 billion people, overall 44 countries, and we have what, about 190 or so in the whole world. So 44 of those are, are based in this area of APAC. We've seen a boom in startup mentality and startup opportunities in Western Europe and in North America. Is the same thing or is a similar thing happening in APAC? Definitely. If you think about things from a venture perspective first, that's a good way to compare across the world what's happening from a trend perspective. And so let's start first with like where are the startups concentrated? As you'd imagine, given that China and India both have a billion plus people, both of those countries have a large number of startups, with India having over 30% and China over 20% in terms of number of startups. But Singapore actually pulls an uh, inordinate amount of weight in terms of number of startups. And that's actually the third largest country in the region. So third largest in terms of the number of startups. But in terms of population, it's how, how many of the 4.4 billion are based there? 5.5 uh, million. So Singapore is tiny. It's a small little island. But it's just become a, a hub for how companies look at opportunities in Asia as becoming their headquarters for all of Asia Pacific. And historically, I think one of the things that drove that was the media industry started in making Australia a first country, and then they moved to Singapore for Asia Pacific. And when Facebook and Google and other companies who had a media or advertising focus came out to Asia, they followed that pattern. And so that created a, an infrastructure tech hub that uh, got, was also supported by partnership with the Singaporean government. And then as healthcare and health tech started coming out, there was already a hub and concentration of talent, investment, and commercial growth that could come out of Singapore. And how about countries like Japan and Australia, which are large geographically or large uh, in terms of population? I think the Australian market, Indonesia, and Japan, I would say the next three largest in terms of number of startups. They all have different phases in terms of the capital and startups. I think Japan has capital, but the number of startups relative to capital has been small. And Australia is actually the reverse in recent times. There's been a lot of startups, but the capital hasn't been there. So they've had to look elsewhere to figure out how to grow. And Indonesia, from a healthcare perspective, is a very standalone entity from a regulatory perspective and from a funding perspective as well. Well, I'm fascinated by this whole region because there are so many different cultures and languages and political and healthcare systems, and it's just very diverse. And we can talk about the differences in just a bit. But first, what are some of the key similarities between the East and the West when it comes to the expectations and the challenges facing the healthcare system? 
Oh, that's a good question. And, you know, I think for context for people who don't know my background, you know, I've had the opportunity and good fortune of being able to live and work in the U.S. and Europe and in Asia. And so having that global perspective, there are some common problems that exist globally that, that apply to Asia. The need for early detection, I think, is still is something that any company that's developing that a solution to solve that problem can be applied into any country throughout the world. Having rising healthcare costs and affecting the cost curve for the groups that provide healthcare to individuals, whether that's government or employers or the individual directly, that's happening consistently. Aging populations, straining healthcare systems. Um, I'd say Asia actually is probably uh, at the forefront because of Japan in terms of how they're feeling that impact, but very, very common problems globally in that space as well. And then the last one I'd touch on would be thinking about uh, linking financial protection and uh, healthcare. Th that's a common challenge that has different solutions in terms of how it's addressed in Asia because of the diversity of countries and healthcare systems, but it is still a common problem. Tony Estrella is my guest. He's an investor, advisor, and global digital health expert. He's also the author of the new fiction novel, Comatose. When we come back, we'll talk about the investment outlook in APAC and the strategies that companies are using to win. Tony, one of the things that I love about healthcare is that we can have so many differences in our cultures, systems, traditions, politics. But when it comes to the problems and needs in healthcare, there are so many things that we have in common and that we need to solve around the world. We've seen a huge amount of health tech investment over the past decade. Startup Health put out their annual numbers, and 2018 was a banner year. 2019 is already off to a great start. Now, you've mentioned the interest in startups in APAC, but how about investment in health tech specifically? Are we seeing a similar level of interest and investment in health tech in APAC as we're seeing in the West? Yeah, definitely. As you missed that, Startup Health has a good way of looking at data across the world. And you know, from their latest report uh, for 2018, they said $14.6 billion was invested across 765 deals in 2018. Now, comparatively, Asia is actually almost equal to the U.S. now. If you look at the number, both in dollar amounts and also in terms of large number of deals, you know you have some really interesting comparisons as to making both regions equally important in figuring out as a health tech company where you should operate, where you can achieve scale, and where can you solve large scale challenges. Some of the larger hubs of where funding is taking place and where innovation is taking place outside of the U.S., London is a large city in terms of total number of deals, but Beijing is actually the same number of deals as what happened in London. Other major cities in Asia include Shanghai, Hangzhou, uh, with Singapore also in New Delhi uh, being important hubs in Asia. One other point I'll touch on there is that if you look at the diversity of where the health tech funding is happening, China is unique in that it has not only a large number of deals, but also large sizes of deals. Southeast Asia is rapidly coming up the curve, though, in terms of both number of deals and size of deals. So the appetite for health tech investment seems on par with what we've seen in the West. Are the types of investors similar also? That's actually one of the differences that we're seeing more quickly in Asia versus what we've seen in uh, especially the U.S. market. You know, the traditional path as an entrepreneur, and I've been an entrepreneur for most of my career, you go and you think about your angels and super angels to help you get started. And then ultimately, the venture path is the path that helps you to achieve scale. But there are some interesting dynamics in family offices in Asia. 
And this is a new pool of capital that, that is outside of the VC community that actually is very influential. There's a, a few reports that have been put together that show that there's an estimated 500 family offices in Asia managing the wealth affairs of really large families that are basically small businesses themselves. So the difference between a family office timeframe versus a VC timeframe is that it tends to be more patient capital. And actually, I'll use a European example as something that is, I think, one of the more patient capital examples I've heard, which is uh, Ada Health based out of Berlin. They raised over $100 million to focus on product development in their offering, and it was largely driven by family office money. Now, I haven't come across one that, that's that patient in Asia, but it's certainly more longer-term focused in the mindset. And one last thing about family offices is that they are active investors. And as you look at the number of billionaires growing across the region, you know, there's China's minting two new billionaires a week. Wow. And so that's the type of family office that can be created overnight that then starts to think about where's the diversity going to come from and some of that money is going to health tech. That's incredible. Yeah. What an amazing part of the world. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on the program and sharing some of these insights there because we, we talk about scale and I've worked with companies in the US that want to enter the European markets and European companies that want to enter the North American markets, specifically, obviously, the US. And there's a whole part of the world that has just tremendous infrastructure opportunity and apparently now a lot of money to spend in this area. So we hear a lot about population health. And certainly with massive populations in countries like China and India, as well as just a massive unserved need, there are real opportunities there. So how are companies being successful in delivering solutions for those markets? Can you give me any, any examples of specific companies or approaches that are working? Yeah, the company, the company that jumps to mind is uh, called CXA, and they focus on population health in Asia primarily through an employer focus. And what makes them different is you think about the employer model in the US and you know that has its benefits in terms of having an entry point for where healthcare happens, but it's also had its challenges. In Asia, the growth of employer-driven healthcare system is actually fairly new. And CXA has come in to fill that gap with a technology-led solution. And you know, they operate in across Asia in 20 countries, primarily focused in Singapore, China, Hong Kong today. They have an interesting set of investors. They're actually going to have a press release coming up in the next couple of weeks around a new round that they've raised with a, a group of investors that are bringing not just a commercial deal, but interesting data into the mix. Because ultimately, what population health is about is maximizing the amount of data that you can have as an input to your AI engine to then figure out how do you personalize recommendations and solutions for individuals to improve their health. And I think that's the unique aspect of where CXA is at, is they work with 600 employers today, and that number will drastically increase with this next raise to go into thousands of employers, all with an AI-driven approach to personalized health. We should mention that you're an independent board director for CXA. So uh, obviously, you know that very well. And uh, obviously, that's the, the reason that this would be the first organization that would uh, spring to mind. Yes. Uh, how about other successful approaches? I mean, uh, you and I talked before when I saw you out at JPM earlier this year about one of the companies, Savonics, which I think also is in your portfolio. But they're actually doing something interesting in terms of partnering with life insurance. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, you know, I used to work in the life insurance industry as a running the innovation group for MetLife in Asia, and that's actually what brought me to Asia in the first place. And through that, that really helped to provide me a level of insight into what the difference in healthcare insurance is in Asia. 
unlike the US or in Europe, where you have insurance models that are focused on reimbursement, the largest insurance product in Asia for health is actually a type of insurance called critical illness. And what that looks like is it looks like a life insurance policy, but instead of having someone being paid out for someone passing away, the payout comes from a debilitating health event, such as getting diagnosed with cancer, or if you have diabetes, uh, having a loss of eyesight or, or a lost limb. Or in the case of Savonics, where it becomes relevant is dementia and Alzheimer's. So the claims trigger payout comes from having someone being diagnosed with late stage dementia. And in a country like Singapore, uh, there might be 30 claims triggers that trigger a payout. But in places like China, where it's a highly competitive market in terms of how things are defined for triggers, there's 170 plus. And so this dynamic of having a safety net for health that is, looks like a one-time payout is a very, very different type of structure. And so life insurance companies actually are very invested into helping to keep their members or policyholders healthy over a long-term period and that you know most people buy a 20, 30-year life insurance policy. So a company like Savonics, what they're doing is they're partnering with life insurance companies to help figure out what are the risks for someone to get dementia, trying to change the curve of diagnosis so that it happens at an earlier stage, and ideally before someone even has early signs of dementia, and keep people healthy so that they can enjoy a fruitful life, and that insurance really does become that just that, a safety net, and not something that uh, leads someone to have to deal with a very uh, terrible disease uh, over the last years of their life. And what countries or regions is that working in? So critical illness actually applies all across the region. So it doesn't matter if we're talking about Japan, which is generally considered one of the developed economies for Asia, along with Korea and Australia, or China or India, which are rapidly growing in that direction, or even early developing economies. There's some form of critical illness everywhere. Savonics is doing work in Japan today, and that's a very good place to start in that there's a high awareness of dementia in the country, both at the government level through education programs, individuals know what to expect, and there's a social ecosystem in place. So Savonics has an interesting opportunity to fit right in and help really uh, improve the tools to diagnose dementia. But Singapore and China are also two enormous markets that are very relevant. China's problem in dementia, which is actually very interesting, is they actually have more people who have dementia than Japan, even though we all think about Japan first, just because of the size of China's population. Now, the infrastructure is very different. The path and journey of an individual who gets diagnosed makes it a big burden on the household when someone gets diagnosed with dementia in China. So it's really important that we really do something about uh, the disease. And I'll make one last point here for our UK audience that they probably recognize and for others is that in the UK, they did a study to, to understand causes of mortality. And dementia is actually the largest cause of death in the UK above any individual cancer. So that's how important it is to try to focus on this disease and managing brain health. Yeah, it is a big problem all around the world. And uh, I'm glad to hear that there are companies that are coming up with some solutions that really work for people when they do suffer from it. So as I'm listening to you describe this, though, I'm just thinking, where do companies start when they want to enter the APAC market? I mean, you certainly have already listed out the six key hubs. But then from there, what do you suggest early stage businesses with limited resources do to try to find out where their product can fit in the mix and what opportunities exist that they might not be able to capitalize on or not even realize exist? That's yeah, a good question. When I was at MetLife, I think one of the benefits of being part of that organization and helping to shape the focus for digital health in Asia through that context was people in the West recognized the MetLife name. So 
Partnerships is a really important component for how startups should think about scaling. Which companies are aligned in solving the problems that you're looking for? And are they focused on looking at startups as a source of corporate innovation? And by and large, the answer for that question is yes. Whether we're talking about life insurance companies, uh, pharma companies, med device companies, even governments and hospitals, the focus on thinking about Western startups as a source of partnership and differentiation is more broadly infiltrating the minds of company leaders and governments than you would think. So MetLife five years ago was just on the cusp of thinking about where they should go with digital innovation and health. Fast forward to today, not only do you have the companies you might recognize like Prudential and MetLife on the insurance front, but you've got PingOn is another large life insurance company in China. You've got various medical device companies and various pharma companies, which may be more Asia-centric, which are also looking at uh, opportunities for partnership. Now, one other piece of advice for companies who are thinking about coming to Asia is there's another theme called cross-border investing, which is to look at opportunities to raise money from investment funds in Asia who want to bring innovation to this part of the world and are willing to go and set up hubs in Silicon Valley, in Boston, and other places in the US or in Europe to find those relevant companies. Tencent is a really good example where they actually have an investment team based in Silicon Valley and have been extremely active, for example, in the genomic space to invest into companies which eventually will end up in China helping to tackle the cancer challenges of that country. So look at insurance, look at technology, look at the typical healthcare organizations, and they do have organizations which are helping to bring companies out to this part of the world. That's really helpful. And I'll tell you what, Tony, we don't have to cover it here on the podcast, but if I can get from you a list of some of these companies, I would love to include them in the show notes for this episode because we can link directly to these programs where they're sort of open to these sorts of applications and approaches. And uh, you've just rattled several of them off here in this discussion. But if there are any others that you can send across to me, I'll hyperlink to them so that companies can find those and go directly to them. My next question is actually something you've already started to answer here with, I think, two of the responses you just gave. I was going to ask you about some of the trends that people should be following. You've already just talked about differentiated partnerships and the opportunities to work with some of those different companies, but then also cross-border investing. There was a third trend that you and I talked about that people should follow for the APAC region. Can you tell me what that is? Yeah, it's artificial intelligence. And for people who follow the news globally around AI, you know, there's really AI in Asia, especially in China. There's the approach and development activities in the US, and then there's the approach and development activities in Europe. And they're all going in slightly different directions, whether it's regulatory reasons, the influence of government overall in terms of data privacy laws. And one interesting trend that's happening in Asia is just the speed of change around the development of solutions in AI. There's so many more use cases for AI out in this part of the world. I'd say it's driven by, first, the types of data which is available to be able to brought into an AI engine. Cashless economies are much more common out here than they are in the West. Take China, for example. WeChat is such a popular platform because everybody uses it as a payment platform also. So you get all this transactional data, which is now available. And the Chinese government approach for AI is to actually have more data be available to access it. And whether that's good or bad from a personal privacy perspective, that's up for a different discussion. But AI is clearly a marketplace that is uh, rapidly changing and influencing the direction of healthcare. 
Yeah, you've already mentioned Ada Health is one company I know that's working there. Enlytic was a guest that I had on about a year ago, and uh, they're also having great success there. They said a similar thing about the openness to the opportunity and the speed of adoption. And then obviously, when you couple that with some of the economic factors, the privacy standards that may or may not exist are certainly very different than some of the things we operate in in the Western parts of the world. It creates interesting opportunities to get through a lot of data sets and really feed those engines and make them very effective, as well as really have an impact with them. So Tony, I can't let you go without telling me a little bit about your book. I love the population of people that are attracted to digital health because we've got so many different talents. And you're the first person, not who's written a book, we have lots of authors that have come on the program, but certainly a fiction writer. Tell me about your book, Comatose. Thanks. Yeah, it's a fiction novel about lucid dreaming. What, what is lucid dreaming? Lucid dreaming is not only that you know you're dreaming, but you are controlling yourself in your dream. So it's like a choose-your-own-adventure movie that's happening in your mind when you're asleep. And uh, I've actually been fortunate that I'm a consistent lucid dreamer. And uh, over the course of eight years, I started taking notes on my dreams and decided to go down the path of seeing if I could create a story out of the fact that I had dreamt the plot, characters, and key scenes for what became this book called Comatose. And Comatose is a story of four people who are trying to cheat death. And they discover a link between lucid dreams and comas, which not only helps to relieve individual pain, but puts them on this race for survival against each other. And it becomes this globe-trotting, fast-paced thriller that ultimately explains why we really dream. And uh, it's been an amazing journey to go from the concept of starting to write and learn how to write to getting selected in this William Faulkner writing competition in the U.S. as a semifinalist, ending up with 10 publishing offers and uh, now launching in the U.K. in a few weeks' time. Well, by the time this podcast goes live, it will be available. So where can people go get this? So Waterstones and Foils are two large bookstore chains in the UK, especially Waterstones is like 283 outlets. So you'll find that everywhere. And for the global audience, uh, go to Amazon and you'll, it's available on Kindle now and the physical books will be available on the 22nd of March. Excellent. And you said that it was about four people. Which one are you? Uh, I'm, I, you know, I think every author will say that there are parts of them in many characters that they write about because it's so personal to figure out how to emotionally connect with uh, the people there. So I, I would actually be curious what people think after they've read the book as to where I show up in the various characters. Really interesting. I cannot wait to, to read the book. I was a uh, person who participated in your, what is it called? Is it a Kickstarter? Yeah, I did a Kickstarter-like campaign through a platform called Publishizer, which is great for authors, especially first-time authors, to find publishing offers and options to get your book out to people. Well, I'm looking forward to getting my copy and uh, certainly encourage people to go to Amazon. We'll have a link to that on the website, of course, so you can go pick up your copy of Comatose. Tony, is there anything else you want to say to the listeners before I let you go? Yeah, I'd just like to say that, you know, if there's ever any questions around Asia, you know, I think, Dan, I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today around the, the starting Asia 101 uh, background in the region. I look forward to whatever questions you receive and, and how you and I can help to continue to educate your audience around what are the opportunities in Asia to continue to make it more and more relevant to people in the West. Brilliant. So I'll have your LinkedIn profile on the website. What are some other ways that people can get in touch with you? Uh, certainly my email at uh, Tony at Taliosa.com and then Twitter at Estrella Vino. Tony, thanks so much for uh, being a part of the program and good luck with the book launch. Thanks so much and uh, appreciate the time today. And uh, thank you to everybody for listening. That was Tony Estrella, advisor, investor, and global digital health expert. Be sure to visit our website at digitalhealthtoday.com forward slash 83 
and grab a copy of the PDF that he put together for you. You can also find a link there to get a copy of his new book called Comatose, and I'm sure he'd appreciate a review of that on Amazon when you have a chance. As always, thanks for tuning in to Digital Health Today, and until next time, keep on innovating.